In the name of the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In 1991, a children's book called The Lovables in the Kingdom of Self-Esteem was published. The Lovables imparts a simple nurturing message. You, the tiny child reading this book, or having this book read to you, are very special. The inside copy reads as follows. I am lovable. I am lovable. I am lovable. By using these magical words, the gates to the kingdom of self-esteem swing open for readers of all ages. Inside the kingdom live 24 animals, the lovables, each one with a special gift to contribute. Mona Monkey is lovable, Owen Owl is capable, Buddy Beaver takes care of the world around him, Greta Goat trusts herself. Doesn't that sound like a sweet story? Isn't that a great book, you think, to teach children self-esteem? And isn't that something very important to do in kids, to teach them self-esteem? I mean, if we want to succeed, don't we have to have good self-esteem? Isn't that the cultural mantra that we've all grown up with? We must have self-esteem. Is that really the best thing for us? And is that biblical? And how do the scriptures look at self-esteem? Because you see, even in the secular world, there are some authorities who are questioning the effects of a culture of self-esteem. Gene Twins, who's a psychologist at San Diego State University, wrote a book called Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. In the book, she says, the self-esteem movement is at least one factor in explaining why millennials have higher self-esteem, are more likely to see themselves as above average, and in general have more positive self-views than previous generations did at the same age, she said. I also think it may explain why they score higher in measures of narcissistic personality traits. Huh. Have you ever thought about the words self-esteem? Self, self, me, I, myself, I, I, I. Kind of reminds me of a time in scriptures where there was an angel named Lucifer who kept saying I, 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 right? Self-esteem. The Apostle Paul dealt with self-esteem in the Ephesians passage that we read a moment ago. In verse 8, this is what he said. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. I want to read that again. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Now, did Paul really say that about himself? Maybe he should have gone to some seminars on self-esteem. Maybe he should have read some books. Maybe he should have grown up with children's programs that told him how wonderful he was. Paul must have been kind of jacked up. Because you see, Paul had a right to think well of himself if you look at his life. I mean, Paul was highly educated. He went to the right schools. We know he was trained under the feet of Gamaliel. We know he was at the top of his field. He he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. We know he accomplished a lot. Before he became Paul, he accomplished a lot in a bad way. When he became Paul, he still accomplished a lot. 
In modern times, Paul would have graduated from Harvard Divinity School. He would have lived in a gated community. He would have been among the who's who of religious people in America. He would have written for professional journals. He was a somebody. Yet in describing himself, he said, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Now when Paul says that, he's using a word characterizing himself in a certain way. It's the Greek word, elek ist oteros. Now it's an unusual word because this is the only time it appears in the Bible. In fact, it doesn't exist in the Greek language formally. Paul kind of made this word up. What he's saying when he says, I'm the less than the least, you would also say it's similar to saying I'm higher than the highest. See, Paul's trying to make a point that there's little, and I'm even littler than that. Perhaps Paul was playing on the meaning of his own name. See, his Roman surname Paulus is Latin for little or small, and tradition says that he was even a short guy. He was a little man. In other words, it would be like Paul saying, I'm little, little by name, little in stature, and morally and spiritually, littler than the littlest of all Christians. Interesting, when we think about the whole culture and the thoughts of self-esteem. But you see, Paul understood that the amazing, condescending God chose him chose him, the same one who had persecuted and killed Christians. And God chose him to become an apostle to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches and mysteries of Christ. You see, Paul was keenly aware of his former life. How could he forget all the things that he had done? I mean, he was even very key in the death of Stephen. This remembrance of all the things that he had done and where he had come from served as a check to keep Paul humble and operated as a check on all his tendencies to think too highly of himself. You know, it should be the same for us as Christians. When we think about where we've come from, don't we all have a reason to be humble? The famous missionary Hudson Taylor was speaking at a conference in Australia when the host introduced him as our illustrious guest. It caught Hudson by surprise. He responded, my dear friends, I'm not an illustrious guest. I'm the small servant of an illustrious master. See, Paul didn't boast about his position as an apostle. Paul never left the impression that he had earned the right to be an apostle nor that he'd even earned the right to become a Christian. He was always aware that he was a sinner forgiven by the grace of God. We know from some other writings of Paul just how much he viewed himself and in what way he viewed himself. In his letter to Timothy, Paul said, if you want to know something I'm good at, I'm good at sinning. In other words, I'm the chief of sinners. When he wrote to the Philippians, he talked about all his accomplishments. And he said, when I look at all my accomplishments, I count them all but dung. Do you know what dung means in the Greek language? It means what I just said, dung. Right? Okay. Paul said, all that stuff that I did, how great all that, it's all dung. He said, Christ is the key thing. Christ is the important thing. Paul was continually aware of God's grace 
using him to be a minister. He knew it was a privilege and an honor to be able to represent God and to preach his message. And you see, Paul's view about himself had a direct effect on his perspective. He said in our passage, This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So think for a moment about the unsearchable riches of Christ. The literal meaning of unsearchable is trackless, inexplorable. Not in the sense that any part is inaccessible, but that the whole is too vast to be mapped out and measured. The same idea is used in describing God's work in Job chapter 5 and chapter 9. See, Paul considered himself as nothing, but that he was called to preach the great something. The only one that really mattered in life. Sometimes, as saints, we think about what we're saved from, which we need to do as we're talking about. But we also need to remember what we're saved for. That God has a mission. God has a purpose. And it's bigger than us. The apostle didn't expand upon what's included in the riches of Christ. The riches of Christ encompass many things which are part of the life of the child of God. From God knowing us before we're born until our eventual eternal inheritance. But the richness in Christ includes things like God's richness of love. His richness of compassion, his richness of mercy, his richness of promises, his richness of blessings. And we can go on and on and on. The riches of Christ are also beyond our comprehension in the sense that they never wear out. In other words, God's wonderfulness, awesomeness, is an endless supply. His supply house is always open. In verse 9, he says, And to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. Now, what is the fellowship of this mystery? It can be explained a few verses earlier. Uh, It's about reconciling Jews and Gentiles together. In other words, God is the great uniter. In other words, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic group, what culture, what race you come from. If you're a Christian, in Christ you're a new creation and we're one family together. That's the application for today. In verse 10, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Let's think about the idea of the manifold wisdom of God. The word manifold is the word polypoikilos in Greek. It means diverse or multifaceted. It's from a word that means many colors and many sides. In the Greek language, it was used to describe a piece of cloth with many patterns or shapes. Paul is saying that he's showing people the many shapes of God's wisdom, the many sides of God's wisdom. It's like a diamond. The word manifold means many-sided, greatly diversified. And he says, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know, if we could take just a moment and we could see into the spiritual dimension all around us, we'd be amazed. Because see, we're just in the natural dimension. And there's a whole spiritual dimension all around us happening. We're just part of it, you see. And so Paul's talking about the spiritual dimension is watching. Right? Angels are watching. Paul proclaimed the message of God 
without shame, without fear. And he told people in verse 12, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, through Christ Jesus. Then he shifts a little bit and he says something very important to us also. Paul says, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. See, at the same time that Paul is contradicting the modern self-esteem movement, he's also contradicting the modern prosperity gospel heresy. You see, the modern prosperity gospel heresy says that if God really loves you and if he's blessing you, you're going to get a lot of stuff. You're going to have nice homes and nice cars. That's how God shows his blessings. But you see, for Paul in his life, to preach the gospel meant getting more problems. In other words, he lost everything. Paul got stripes. He got imprisonments. His honors were dishonors. His glory was in his suffering. His rewards were in his losses. Paul was reminding the believers to not despair, be discouraged. Tribulations are grounds for glory and not gloom. You see, Paul was then a prisoner in Rome. And instead of just sitting in a fit of depression, he began writing letters and talking to those around him. In other words, he expected to accomplish something all the time to make a difference in the world. Do you know that sometimes the sick, the afflicted, and the imprisoned in our modern culture feel useless? But it's not true. They're not useless. The long imprisonment of John Bunyan, for example, allowed him to write the famous book Pilgrim's Progress, which has connected countless many to God. The attitudes of trust, thankfulness, and patience during a time of physical suffering may do more to show honor to God than one could do in a life of health. In other words, it's a testimony to others. It shows in practice how much God means in our lives and how he walks through difficulties with us. It shows the sustaining power of the gospel. Paul says we need to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And he says he, want us, he wants us to be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And then he says that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, how could I be filled with all the fullness of God? Because the heavens can't contain the fullness of God. But he says, be filled with the fullness of God. Because he said after that a little bit, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. So as I was writing this sermon, I wrote down a question for myself that I'm going to pose to you today also. How many times do I limit God? And how many times do you limit God? He's a big God. Finally, I've done a lot of children's sermons through the years. And when you're trying to uh, share a concept with little kids, you have to share a concept at their level. And so one of the things I've shared with little kids many, many times is I said, we believe in a big God and a little bitty devil. And so you can get this going with kids. We believe in a big God and a little bitty devil. Now you see, what Paul, the reason I shared that is because what Paul believed in was the big God and a little bitty Paul. 
That was his attitude. And so what does this mean for us as God's people? We need to glory in humility. And that's countercultural. In other words, it's good to be humble. And we have to have God help us do that. You see. God wants us to bring about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants as we go out into our spheres of influence to bring the kingdom on earth by being submissive to the king and touching others with the kingdom wherever we go. This is the ultimate purpose of the church. It's the ultimate purpose of every believer. We need to rise up to our callings, rise up to our destiny. We need to glory in him and not think so much about us. One of my old mentors used to say, if you major on your rights, you get rebellion. But if you major on your responsibilities, you get revival. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is a mandate given to the church to every Christian sitting in this room today. And so my final thing is, let's do that. Amen. Okay.